Even the father of the atomic bomb had to sit down somewhere. It's hard to believe that our legendary first lab director and brilliant physicist, J. Robert Oppenheimer, did something as ordinary as using a chair at work like the rest of us do. His was a rather basic military-issue chair made by the B.L. Marble Company. It is now on display in the lab's National Security Research Center. This is the lab's classified library. Here, collections containing millions of nuclear security materials are housed, along with some unclassified artifacts, too. Fascinating finds truly are down every aisle and around every corner in the National Security Research Center, like notebooks from Nobel Prize winners and a piece of a Russian missile from the Cold War. However, aside from a recently gifted book, the chair is the only Oppenheimer possession that the lab has, and Oppie fans love it. The chair is routinely loaned to museums nationwide for display. As it turns out, though, the fascination may be more about the man who sat in the chair than the chair itself. I'm Bryce Steves from the Los Alamos National Laboratory's Public Affairs Office. You're joining me as we hear the stories behind some of the lab's most interesting pieces of history. Welcome to the Relics Podcast. Los Alamos National Laboratory's story starts four years into World War II. The United States entered into the conflict following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Army General Leslie Groves was in charge of the Manhattan Project. This included a secret lab in Los Alamos called Project Y. Its purpose? To create the world's first nuclear weapons. Oppenheimer and his team did just that. In only two years, the lab accomplished one of the greatest scientific achievements of all time and helped end World War II weeks later. Perhaps Oppenheimer had his moments of scientific breakthrough while seated in his office. Or maybe he was standing. This particular piece of office furniture doesn't exactly look like it lends itself to long periods of use. The chair is Bank of England style, and I understand this was very popular in the early and the mid-20th century. It's made of birch, and it's painted a very pretty foresty green color. So it's technically adjustable, but not very. (laughs) And also I want to note that the pin is made of wood. That is the only thing holding this chair together. That's Wendy Strohmeyer. She's the artifacts collection specialist for the lab's public science museum called the Bradbury, where the chair is accessioned. Wendy, do you think it would have been comfortable for Oppenheimer to sit in? Would this chair pass the assessment from our Office of Ergonomics? To me, it looks a little rigid. It does. It's This chair is a wonderful artifact, and it's a beautiful antique piece of furniture, but it's a terrible chair. Its post-World War II whereabouts are a little fuzzy. We aren't exactly certain of what happened to the chair after Oppenheimer left the lab in the fall of 1945. He first went to Caltech and then to the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. Wendy thinks the chair must have been put into storage for years before being rediscovered and displayed. Eventually, it was enclosed in its protective case. Was anyone ever allowed to sit in it before it was in its case? Did, uh, did you ever take a turn sitting in the chair? No. <laughs> no, and I wouldn't dare. 
In his nearly 20 years here, the lab's senior historian hasn't had the opportunity to sit in it either, but he knows what it represents. Uh, my name's Alan Carr. I am a program manager at Los Alamos National Laboratory, where I also serve as the senior historian. You know, my expertise is really interpreting the history of the laboratory. The chair in and of itself, it's nothing special. I mean, it's exactly what you would think of uh, in terms of, you know, well, what would a World War II surplus military chair look like? That's it. But uh, what was done by Oppenheimer, who, uh, who used that chair, is uh, pretty remarkable. He was, he was in charge of a laboratory that did not exist yet. The site had not even been selected. He was supposed to build a laboratory, populate it with scientists, and lead it to success. That success was the nation's wartime mission to build nuclear weapons. This achievement brought the world into the atomic age. It defined Oppenheimer, too. When you look back at Oppenheimer's short tenure as director, it's remarkable what he was able to accomplish in bringing together so many people from around the country and around the world, uh, a diverse set of people with different views and different goals, different ambitions, to be able to get them to work together and to be able to produce two entirely different types of nuclear weapons in only about 27 months. I think that even Oppenheimer's harshest critic would have to concede that he did an incredible job as director of the laboratory. Being the director at Los Alamos, clearly, I think, history has shown that was the definitive moment of his career and of his life. The, that relatively short time uh, that he was the director of Los Alamos. Uh, it was, I think that he, he recognized it was an opportunity to do something incredible perhaps to change history. Wendy and Alan agree that this is what makes the chair so interesting. I, I think the fascination with looking at this chair for people comes from imagining what it must have been like to be Dr. Oppenheimer, managing this project with the, the pressure of finishing it and ending the war. But meanwhile, how is he taking care of himself? Can he ever sit down during the day? Is he comfortable when he's working? He must have worked very long hours. What must that have been like? I think that most would agree that he was truly brilliant by the real definition of the, of the word. One of the reasons that he's the director of the laboratory is that he was considered America's leading theoretical physicist. And so when we think of the great physicists of today who postulate all of these far out ideas. Well, that was kind of Oppenheimer back in the 1930s when he was imagining the existence of things like black holes, th things that we still don't understand. And so Oppenheimer was, uh, you know, uh, he developed into a gifted lecturer over time, brilliant physicist. He had absolutely no management experience coming into the job as director of our laboratory. But one of the reasons why that wasn't a big deal, they. The, the Manhattan Project leaders thought, eh, we'll only need 100 people at Los Alamos maybe to get the job done. Surely Oppenheimer can figure it out. <laughs> uh, fortunately, he had a mentor in General Groves, who is his boss in charge of the entire Manhattan Project. I think that they were an incredible, uh, they, they formed an incredible partnership, learning on the fly. He was under enormous stress. But at the end of the day, the man who sat in that chair is, you know, he's at the center of our creation story. He's a He's a hero to us here at the laboratory, in a sense. He's a national hero. 
I think uh, in uh, considering what he did for our nation in a very dark time during World War II. And he'll always have kind of this dual legacy of, of being remembered as a brilliant scientist, humanitarian, uh, great organizer and leader at Los Alamos during the war. Uh, but all those things, you know, were brought to bear in order to build the world's first nuclear weapons, the first super weapons of mass destruction. And, uh, you know, all of that, I guess, in a sense, came together in this man who sat in that chair. Alan, why did General Groves choose Oppenheimer? I mean, what did Groves see in Oppenheimer that put him above the other contenders for the job as lab director? Oppenheimer and Groves were very different in just about every way that you can imagine, yet they respected each other. They had different opinions. They, they, they listened to each other and they accomplished something remarkable. Do you think that Oppenheimer and Groves had a little bit of a bromance going on? <laughs> there, there are some hints of that. Uh, I, I don't know if I'd use that term or not, but if you look at their correspondence, for instance, it's very formal. But there is a, uh, there's kind of a warm, a, a slightly warm flavor to it. But what about Oppenheimer? Not as a scientist, but as just a guy. We know he was a husband and a father of two. He was known for his storytelling in Sharp Wit. He liked his steaks rare. He wore a pork pie style hat, smoked cigarettes constantly, and loved cold martinis with a little bit of honey. What else? Uh, he knew Sanskrit. He would read the Bhagavad Gita. Of course, he, he referenced that when he was talking about the Trinity test. He was interested in poetry. Uh, the, the name Trinity was given to that test by Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer uh, was reading the poetry of John Donne at the time, and he thinks that that inspired him to name the test uh, Trinity. He was interested in all of these fields. He was interested in art in addition to science and, and all of these other things. I think as well, you know, there's this side of Oppenheimer that's not talked about as much. He could be very cruel. You know, there are stories about, uh, you know, kind of if you were not in Oppenheimer's circle, you were out. <laughs> and uh, that was not a very pleasant place to be on the outside of Oppenheimer's circle. I think sometimes when he could be cutting and cruel, uh, you know, in, usually verbally, things, things like that. But Oppenheimer, you know, a complex character an interesting one, far more multifaceted than I think that a lot of people really give him credit for. There are no photos of Oppenheimer sitting in the chair when he was the director. And there are no photos of his office at the lab. So how do we know this chair was his? I have a photo of the chair with a, a plate on it that reads... This is Dr. Oppenheimer's chair that he used as the director of the laboratory during the Manhattan Project. That plate was no longer on the chair, but underneath the seat was a paper tag. It had the manufacturer's information on it. So Wendy reached out to the Historical Society in Ohio, where the furniture manufacturer was located. She verified dates when this particular style of chair was made and sold. That information matches when Oppie was at the lab in Los Alamos. There's also the photo of him, of Dr. Oppenheimer, when he visited the lab in 1964 and sat in it. So we do have those photos, and it is the exact same chair. The look on his face, to me, he is smiling, and I interpret that as sort of nostalgic look on his face. And he's smiling in a way 
that I interpret as sort of a warm feeling of recognition. Like, hey, yeah, this was my chair. This was the chair I sat in. Today, the chair is a reminder of Oppenheimer, the lab's first mission, and how, together, they changed the world. When you, again, when you take this relatively simple-looking object and considering uh, consider the history that was made from it, I, I think it's, you know, and that's really why we like objects and artifacts. They connect us to the past. And as basic as this item is, it's what we tangibly have of Oppenheimer, who died in 1967. All we have is the chair. Relics is produced by Los Alamos National Laboratory. Joey Montoy is producer. Bry Steves is writer and host. Additional thanks goes to Andrew Gordon, Chris C. DeBaca, Lexi Patronis, Joe Gonzalez, Riz Ali, and Scott Falk.